0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Welcome to Theater Geeks Anonymous. At this time, we ask that you turn off all cell phones. Unless, of course, you're using them to listen to this podcast, in which case, please keep it on. And please refrain from any flash photography, as it is dangerous to the performers of this podcast. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Don't you see? It's so simple. Step one, we Google the biggest flops on Broadway. Step two, we find the crazy stories behind them. Step three, we see how they lose millions of dollars. Millions? Broadway isn't cheap. A Lot of fancy people want to be producers. Step four, find out why the show won't go on. Step five, end this episode and head to Times Square.
1: Times Square? That'll never work. Only Broadway
0: successes are in Times Square. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 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 ye of little faith like in a tirade and then i was like yeah and that was it <laughs> it was so brilliant i was like all right this is like this is the perfect analogy to the relationship of white people and black people in this world Where black people have done nothing but like yell and try to explain to us how horrible life has been and our response has always been like, yeah <laughs>
1: Some people, it's not though. At least some people say, yeah, some people are like, I don't know. Well, like get over it. You know, that's true.
0: Yeah. You know what? It's so, it's really interesting. I, I don't know a lot of people Mm -hmm. that just are on the bandwagon of like, nope, it never happened. It, you know, racism isn't real. It might've been real back then. Not anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever, uh, in like my personal life, ever had yeah. a dealing with a person like that before so i'm i'm very lucky that way, yeah but they do exist i mean i've seen the yeah. i've seen the evidence i've heard the anecdotes, but it's it really truly boggles my mind that yeah. anyone can can look at it from any direction and just completely say nope." Not in my world. <laughs> yeah,
1: we fi- we fixed racism. When right. when did you do that? Remember we missed what, that day because it still happens. Little year old girl got to go to the white-only school. We fixed it. <laughs> We've
0: who <laughs> and I just I just sh- another article came out that I saw on Facebook today mm-hmm. about that little Ruby um, mm-hmm. who's sixty-five years old.
1: Yeah, I just think that's nuts because she's like just a little younger than my parents are. Yeah, my my mom is four years older than her yeah my mom's birthday would have been in a couple weeks and she's four years older your mom was the same age as my parents born in 51
0: yeah yeah oh my gosh (laughs)
1: that's fun (laughs) yep 51 and my dad was 49 okay yeah yeah you gotta sit I'm not who's that one Sperry Sperry Sperry! Hi! Hi, Sperry! (laughs) Hi,
0: Sperry! He's very sweet, but he's very needy.
1: (laughs) Oh, buddy.
0: And he's like 16 years old almost, so he's like, he's an old Jack Russell, but he's still got more energy than Sweet Pea sometimes, so. (laughs) Goodness. I know. Tell me about it. And he sheds like a nightmare. Some of those short hairs. Yeah. It's, it's always, the, it's the short haired dogs that you really have to contend with all the time. Cause like with double coated dogs, like a Husky or German Shepherd, Golden Retriever, like mm-hmm. they'll have their, they'll be shedding, you know, kind of like humans do where you just, you know, they brush against something and lose some hairs, but like they have shedding seasons mm-hmm. where they'll blow their coat. So like right before summer, right before winter, they'll just kind of blow everything out. Mm-hmm. Short like single-coated dogs like Jack Russells, pugs, beagles, they just shed constantly, and their short little hairs just stick into your body. I, I'm sitting on the couch right now going, "Yep, there's one. Oh, that's really itchy." <laughs> so it's fun.: <laughs> <laughs> How long do you have him for?: And tomorrow night. he's okay. But his, uh, I had him like again last weekend. Mm-hmm. He was the one that was being picked up when we recorded oh. last um, And then the, his dad is probably going to ask for next weekend as well. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure what exactly he's doing, but he was like, I'm just taking advantage of, of getting away. <laughs> I was like, sounds good to me. <laughs> oh, i <I'm> your dog. <laughs> so,
1: oh, yeah. little buddy. Yeah. Um, all right, well, hey theater geeks thank you so much for joining us uh this week um we didn't we know what we haven't done what welcome (laughs) what's up theater geeks because last week's episode was not the place for yeah and that's okay that's okay sometimes it's sometimes it's not But But it's okay this week. I will also
0: say, because we're doing it by Zoom again. Yeah. so it's like, I just feel like we're just a little bit off, you know, like, we're just (laughs) a few of what our normal is. Yeah. Because normally you're sitting across from me on a couch and, you know, we can look at each other and I can push record and then be like, okay, hey, welcome, you know, whatever. And and then we always know. Yeah. This time, it's all up in the air.
1: It's all up in the air.
0: (laughs) This is Theater Geeks Anonymous,
1: if you didn't know that. If you didn't know, and I'm Ebony. I'm Pamela. (laughs) (laughs) And this week's episode, we're going to be a bit more on our normal sort of content, Um, except we are going to do a play instead of a musical. And Thanks. that is the big, that's the biggest change. Cause normally we only do, we only do musicals, but, um, I chose this one for a very specific reason. Part of it was because I mentioned this playwright in our, um, theater and racism podcast that we, that we released, uh, the last time. And the other part is because, um, if people don't know about this play, I want them to, and I want people to be doing it because I feel like uh, this play is really, really relevant to what's going on right now. And yeah. um, it really didn't have a successful run uh, on Broadway and it was only on Broadway one time. Okay. So,
0: Oh, I'm excited to hear about this. Yeah. <laughs>
1: you told me, I love it because you texted me a couple
0: of ideas of what yeah. you were going to be doing. But mm-hmm. then you were like, I think I'm just going to surprise you. And I was yeah. like, okay. So I'm, <laughs> I'm thoroughly excited about this and waiting to be surprised.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, this week's episode, we're going to talk about the sign in Sidney Brewstein's window. Oh. Have you ever heard about this play, Pamela? I have not heard about this. It is written by Lorraine Hansberry. Okay. Who you probably know from... A Raisin in the Sun. Yes. (laughs) Yep. Yes. So, um, yeah, so I first knew about this play um, last year, actually. So I'm also very new to knowing about it. And, you know, I go to that um, thing called Upstart Creatures where it's, like, free. It's a reading. You just donate. And they have, like, a three-course meal. Yeah, yeah. So last spring they did this, this play. And like I said, it was the first time I'd ever heard of it. Um, and it was, I mean, at the end of the play, the audience was silent.
0: Yeah. It's just
1: like one of those, you know,
0: well, I'm getting goosebumps (laughs) just thinking about it.
1: (laughs) And, and, um. And it's just so funny, like I mean, Upstarts has been really good about like their whole thing is they like to do plays that aren't done very often. Yeah. Um and, and they're the ones who I was first introduced me to Fefu and her friends. I'd yes, never known about that's it. That's the one I remember you talking about. And then Fefu and her friends was done at um, uh, Tifana this past fall, Theater for a New Audience in Brooklyn, and then it was nominated for Drama Desk Award, that production, and, awesome. um, and it, it, di- it did not win yesterday. Yesterday, they announced them. Oh, okay. Um, but A Soldier's Play won, which is also very relevant to what's happening right now. So <laughs> that, in that play, I got to see it. That was the last Broadway show I saw before the shutdown. A Soldier's,
0: a soldier's Play?
1: Mm-hmm. A soldier's okay. play and my getting, okay, this is a total sidebar, but I just have to tell you about the miracle of things sometime. <laughs> so I was at, um, the CTI three-day workshop. I was volunteering because I was part of the cohort and you were, they, they offered that to us. And I was like, I really want to see a soldier's play before it closes. And it had like a week and a half left. And um, so what I did was, or not even a week and a half, I think it was like, no, no, it was. It was like a week and a half. That's correct. Um, And so what I did was uh, I was looking on today ticks, and even like halfway through the day on the Sunday, the closing day of the workshop, still had like $49 tickets. Like, you know, so I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I go um, help everybody put... Things back in the office on my way walking towards the theater I mean there were hardly there was like two tickets left on today tickets, and they were extremely expensive and I was like how did this happen (laughs) what in the world so I get there to the theater I go up to the box office because sometimes there's a cheaper ticket there there really wasn't Um, but a woman overheard me talking to the box office guy and she was like, she was like trying to sell another ticket that she had and she wanted cash for it. I didn't have cash on me. I run to the ATM, run back. She's gone. She sold the ticket to somebody else. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm like, I go back to the box office. He still has that ticket. I'm almost about to buy it. And another lady overhears me and she um she had an extra ticket she's trying to sell because at the last minute her friend who was supposed to come couldn't come and she was like I'll sell it to you for I don't remember the amount of money but I was like all I have is like this cash on me like right now cuz the show is starting right yeah. is the cash is on me right now cuz this other woman said she'd sell me her ticket and then she just like sold it to someone else and disappeared <laughs> So the woman was like, "It's fine. I'll take whatever you have." So I gave her the money, and I sat. We were in like sixth row center oh, in the wow. orchestra, and I ended up paying like sixty bucks for this for this <laughs> ticket. <laughs> nice. And the play was absolutely amazing. Oh, that's lovely. That's a good love story. It. Isn't it, was it? harrowing?
0: <laughs> I was with you the whole time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, I was like so sweaty from running up and down oh, 42nd sure. Street. It was not, you know, but like it's really cool how it all worked out. Sorry yeah. for the person who missed out, but like thank you for the ticket and thank you for not coming. I mean, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So, like I said, the sign in Sydney Brewstein's window was written by Lorraine Hansberry. Um, that my references for this episode are the Lorraine Hansberry documentary sighted hands, feeling heart, um, the New York times review. Um, I, I also used Wikipedia. Um, I think those were the main things I used. Okay. Yeah. Um, And I really wanted to highlight the documentary because um, I really, it gave me a lot of really fantastic information. Awesome. So if you all um, have access to PBS, um, it is on there right now and it's a part of their American Masters, but it is a proper documentary. It's like a couple hours long and it is the really the only documentary about Lorraine Hansberry. So, um, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window was written by Lorraine Hansberry, and like I said, she's most well known for A Raisin in the Sun, um, which premiered on Broadway, and I didn't realize she was this young when she was 28 years old. Wow. <laughs> uh, the Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window was her final play that she wrote, and it premiered on Broadway um, just four months before she died at the age of 34 from pancreatic cancer. Oh. Um, Lorraine began writing the sign in Sidney Brustein's widow, window in 1962, along with three other plays that she was working on. The sign in Sidney Brustein's window was based on an eclectic set of strivers she knew from Greenwich Village. In the summer of 1963, Lorraine had to pause her new draft of the sign in Sidney Brewstein's window, as her bleeding ulcers, they thought, which is what they thought she was having, were causing her such severe pain that she had to go in for an operation. Right. Um, and she was that she was she went in for the operation because she was told that it was going to help the pain and her bleeding. On August twenty eighth, nineteen sixty three, and again, this is from the documentary. She's watching in the documentary. Um, there's a reenactment sort of of her like lying on her bed, recuperating because she's had a second procedure done and she's watching the civil rights march on Washington. Yeah. Two weeks after the march on Washington, um, she was contacted by Robert Nimeroff, who actually at this point is her estranged husband. So she was married for a while, but even though they were separated, they were really good friends. Yeah. And he, and funny enough, her doctor, Robert C. Gonna butcher his last name, DeLugoff, um, were the main producers of The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window. Love. So she's writing like four plays that are a lot about the civil rights movement um, experiences that she's had in the past. But The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window is the one that um, ends up getting on Broadway before she passes. OK. Um, so they're contacting her, you know, how it happens, right? Bothering her about, can you hurry up? Where are your rewrites? Like, you said you're going to do these rewrites. And she, <laughs> in the documentary, there's a, there, she, she had a lot of journals. And so she's like, why can't people leave me the hell alone? <laughs> 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 There's just so many quotes from her journals that, like, as a writer, I was like, oh, girl, I'm like, I feel that I feel that on a visceral level. Um, It's just so (laughs) funny. So funny. Um, At the beginning of the month, uh, like I said, she'd had another procedure um, to help the pain subside, but was on strong painkillers and trying to recuperate. By September 13th of 1963, Nimeroff contacts her again about revisions but she refuses to do so as she's still trying to recuperate yeah so this is like a long you know it's a long road um and it, at the same time like she is working on other things like she was working on a writing project for one of the not-for-profit organizations that she was heavily involved in trying to help them raise money for the civil rights movement I mean, if people don't know again i really urge you to watch this documentary because She did so much for the civil rights movement. She was so young and such a very loud voice um, for what was going on. I mean, her closest friends were like, were like James Baldwin, Sidney Poitier, like these people that were marching, um, you know, getting beaten for their causes. Like she, she, you know, she was no slouch and she, um, her father she grew up in Chicago on the South side, but her father was a very prominent um, African-American man in, in Illinois and um, particularly in Chicago, but um, he's very affluent, but because of racism that all the, the blacks were still subjugated to that one area of Chicago on the yeah. South side. And so he owned a bunch of buildings there and he, could have afforded to live elsewhere, but was not able to um, but then, as a sign of as a as a protest, he ended up purchasing a nice house in a more white neighborhood that was sort of like you know it was sort it was sort of like um it's funny because it was sort of like a like a little jab because it was on. Like on the very edge of where you're like allowed to be. Like here's the red line. I'm yes. gonna be right here, just right next to the red
0: line. Yes. Oh
1: man. Yeah, that's literally what he did. That's it's so my great. Kind of petty right
0: there. I right? Love it.
1: <laughs> so good.
0: Yes.
1: It's so good. And so um, Lorraine was the youngest, and so a lot of her growing up years were were actually there in 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 that house. But it's just like so. Um, I just love that. But her parents were real um were were real um real strong in the movement, you know, when she was little and so that really informed a lot of her writing, informed a lot of the work that she did yeah. and a lot of the causes that she supported. That's awesome. Um in December of 1963, okay? And this was another thing I loved right. So, okay. September 13th, Nemiroff is like, Lorraine, we need we need some new we need some new edits. She's like, I'm tired. I don't feel well. I'm not doing this right now. And then in December, <laughs> that her journal entry is she's talking about quitting being a writer and she's going to go to um she's gonna like she's like I could have a little retreat center up in the Catskill Mountains somewhere. And I could just like be retired during the summer. I mean, it's like this mental space that all writers or any kind oh, of creator yeah. goes to mm-hmm. where they're just like, I'm just going to quit doing what I'm doing because like this is I can't do this yep. anymore. And I'm going to go live a quiet life in the country where I do nothing and don't write anymore. But obviously that's not what <laughs> she actually did. Um, but like these like ups and downs she had, they're just so, so real, so real. <laughs> um, so in December of 1963, like I said, she's contemplating quitting, um, and having a retreat center. And then, um, by January 1st, she's writing up a storm and literally rings in the new year writing, you know, a, a lot of revisions for, um, the sign in Sydney Brewstein's window. Awesome. And now she's like, I'm going to finish all four of my plays and it's going to be amazing. And 1964 is going to be the best year. And like, I mean, and then by, (laughs) and so that's January 1st and we all know how new year's resolutions go (laughs) because by January 4th, she's struggling with her writing again and says in her journal, I hate this play.
0: Uh, it hasn't <laughs> been there like if you've created anything at yeah. some point you're like no I hate it I should just throw the whole thing out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you look at it and you're like you can't fix this how am I supposed to fix this <laughs> I think you just you're so close to it for so long yeah that you just need to give it some room and then come back to it and be like oh, okay okay I see right. where I was headed with that right <laughs>
1: And, but the thing is, is like, she had so much room, right? Because she started this in 1962. Yeah. And here we are in January 1964, and my, but she's been working on it now, I mean, you can guess probably a year and a half, maybe two years. Like, like imagine how much her life changed, though, oh, so in much. that year and a
0: half. Yeah. So the idea that you're coming at this play from the same headspace is yeah. just a fallacy. I mean, you're just, right. you're just a completely different person writing this show now. Mm-hmm.
1: And especially with all of the physical pain that she yeah. had been through. Um, Cause she had started writing it, you know, she started writing it in 62, but it was um, pretty early in 63 when like the pain just became very, very severe. Yeah. Um, and what we find in the documentary is that uh, between Robert and Bert? there was this practice that happened often and it sort of has, it's sort of like the farewell. I don't know how much you know. I haven't seen the movie yet, but like I do know the premise. And so I don't. the premise of the movie farewell based on a true story, this family finds out that the matriarch of the family has terminal cancer. And they're, excuse me, and they decide not to tell her that she has terminal cancer um, because they believe that if you tell her, then her um, mental stability will decline. She won't be like positivity is like a huge force in, in um, helping to keep people alive. And when they think they're dying, like it can, it can, um, make them decline faster. I mean, funny enough, the farewell, it's crazy because actually the grandmother's been alive 10 years now since that diagnosis and still has no idea she has it. So when the movie came out, like her, her granddaughter who wrote and directed this movie, they are all lying to her, telling her that like, it's not really about our family. It's sort of, like, loosely based on oh our family. God, Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. Yeah. And she's still alive. And they told wow. her she only had six six months left. Wow. So everybody comes from all over the world to, like, see her under, like, a ruse of somebody's wedding, you know, or something else. <laughs> yeah. And she's still kicking, has no idea she has a terminal <laughs> illness.
0: That's amazing. Yeah.
1: So um, this practice was common, like, in the 50s and 60s. And so even though Nemiroff and um, Lugoff both knew that she had this cancer, they didn't tell her that. So she just thought she had, like, these bleeding ulcers. And when you hear in her, um, excuse me, you hear in her journals, like, she would sort of vacillate between optimism and pessimism. Like, yeah. Like, she would be in so much pain sometimes. She would be like, I think I might die. Um, and then there would be other times where she'd be like, I just feel so good about life. Like, I'm so happy to be alive. Um, not knowing that. I mean, actually, what she had, um, they didn't know it was terminal at the the beginning of her having it. Okay. So, um you know, I think it just progressed to such a state and so rapidly that then, yeah. you know, she, she died so young. Um, previews for the sign in Sidney Brustein's window began on September 26th of 1964. Um, and they began at the, what's now called the Long Acre Theater. Lorraine was unable to complete all of the revisions that she had wanted because of her health and was also too weak to be there for the final dress and a bunch of the other preparations. Mm. The Broadway cast was Gabrielle Dell as Sidney Brewstein, Rita Moreno as Iris Paradis Brewstein, wow. John Alderman as David Reagan, Ben Eliza as Alton Scales, Alice Ghostly as Mavis Paradis Bryson, um, and that would be Rita Moreno's character sister. Okay. Cynthia O'Neill as I um, Ioria, I think that's how you say it. Ioria Paradis, another okay. sister. And then Frank Schofield as Wally O'Hara. Um Yeah, I I chose not to give the full synopsis of this play on purpose. Okay. Because it is a lot of spoilers if mm. I do that. So, I'm just going to give very sort of like brief brief sort of overall feeling synopsis okay. synopses so that so that it piques everyone's interest enough to really look into it, read the play, and actually think about performing it in ways. The play was directed by Peter Cass. Scenic design was by Jack Blackman. Costume design was by Fred Vopel and lighting design was by Jules Fisher. The play is about a Jewish newspaper publisher and political activist uh, who's trying to remain optimistic in the face of struggle. This is the probing, hilarious, and provocative story of Sydney, a disenchanted Greenwich Village intellectual, his wife Iris, an aspiring actress in their colorful circle of friends and relations, set against a stormy political campaign. The play follows its characters in their unorthodox quest for meaningful lives in an age of corruption, alienation, and cynicism. With compassion, humor, and poignancy, the author, Lorraine, examines questions concerning the fragility of love, morality, and ethics, interracial relationships, drugs, rebellion, conformity, and especially withdrawal from or commitment to the world. Wow.
0: at
1: LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. terms and conditions apply. Um, she. So this is another part that I thought was really sweet from the documentary telegrams from her family and friends on opening night. This one's from her mother. Dear baby, we are pulling for you in every way. All will be well. Love Mother Mamie, Bill, and all the Hansberries. Oh. So cute. (laughs) Um, This one is from Lloyd Richards. Lloyd Richards did the production of A Raisin in the Sun, and so they're good friends. The Broadway production? Yes, the Broadway production. Mm -hmm. Dear Lorraine, I was tied up in rehearsal and missed your opening. All the best wishes for you and your play. Love, Lloyd. To Mr. and Mrs. Nimeroff and the entire cast, wishing you all the success tonight. God smile on you. And that's from Juanita Hardy and her husband, Sidney Poitier.
0: Wow. (laughs) Can you imagine walking into the theater to sign your name on the call sheet and seeing that up on the call board? I mean, like, whoa. (laughs) That must have just felt
1: incredible. (laughs) Oh, man. So neat. So neat. And then finally, this is Nimeroff's telegram to Lorraine uh, the morning of opening. I love you, Lorraine, for everything you are. And this play is your tough Lorraine Hansberry, the great sunflower on top of the stem, even racked with pain as now is tough and stronger and more beautiful than any of us. Oh, that's lovely. Isn't that sweet? (laughs) It's really sweet. Uh, Lorraine saw the play. She said that she felt like the play tries to examine something of commitment, all kinds of commitment, what to identify with, what to become involved in, what to take a stand on, and what, if you will, even to believe in at all. Mm. So unfortunately, the play got mixed reviews. And um, what's cool about the documentary is that there's a lot of um, amazing people who are interviewed who uh, a few were in the cast. Rita is in the documentary. Yeah. And there's like a few playwrights that are just well-respected in the community. Um, And there's a consensus that she had been pigeonholed after Raising the Sun. Like you have a a really huge success like that. And everyone expects you to have this singular voice where you're only going to talk about, excuse me. Let me get some. Ebony, do you have the COVID? No. Oh no! (laughs) (laughs) No, I just I warm and like I like glue mouth. I don't know. But no, I I feel allergies are
0: not. It's like tree pollen is crazy right now. So I don't know if you're as affected as I am by that stuff. Might be
1: because I (laughs) like I I liked I was leaving the back door and open and Hmm. the like, but with the the screen door closed and it has like a screen that you can open. But I also sat out there for a while this morning. Yeah. So it may have just like messed me, you know, up.
0: Quite possibly. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, so a lot of the things, like I said, they were saying, you know, that, 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 Society to sort of, like, pigeonholed her. And so yeah. they were expecting this play to be about a bunch of, you know, a black, a black family or black friends. Like, so it was very jarring for them to see, you know, like, one, one African-American person on stage. Yeah. Um, and I find that that is a huge question that we're all really in this moment contending with right now. It's this. It's this question of. Uh, this question of black voices and where we have so far been allowed to fit, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I think that's also true for the LGBTQ plus yeah. community. Um, I think it's also true for people who are not, um, you know, a double zero. Yeah. Um, i think you know it the 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 thing is that like for for all of us um we struggle with this people putting you in a role where it's either about black like the play is about right. blackness um it's about your struggle as a black person and we would love to get to a place where it was just about living a friend of mine just wrote basically an essay he said
0: it was just supposed to meant meant to be like a Facebook post but yeah. then it ended up being so long and he you know he was just like read it or not whatever but he's a writer he's a black mm-hmm. writer mm-hmm. um for I think he's writing, I I think he's written both plays, but he also might be writing musical as well. Okay. But his idea is that when he looks at it from the outside, there are like three different categories. And I'm hoping that I can remember all of this well enough because it's been a couple of days since I read it. Mm -hmm. But there's like a fantasy world Mm -hmm. where it really doesn't matter. You could be purple and it just makes sense. Like SpongeBob. Right. So any Mm -hmm. person of color can fit in anywhere because it truly doesn't matter if you're a black body or not. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you've got like a realistic world and then like a non-realistic world. So the Mm -hmm. realistic world would be where essentially you've got, you know, one black friend of the lead who is the sassy one or, you know, like, and it's, it's this kind of archetype, not archetype, but stereotype really yeah, Yeah. uh, of what we consider a black person to be. And Mm -hmm. then you've got the non-realistic world where, color doesn't mean anything. And that, mm-hmm. yes, that's a black person, but we're not going to call attention to it. But it's right. almost, he says that if for him, at least, um, that's almost a bigger insult than putting a black person on stage and letting them speak in a way that is at all reminiscent of how black people are supposed to quote unquote speak yeah Mm -hmm. because then at least we're seeing that black body on stage we're seeing that brown body on stage Mm -hmm. and it's you know uh, as an audience to be told yes that person is black Mm -hmm. and they're there for the reason Mm-hmm, we have mm-hmm. them there for a reason, but it's, it's interesting because I'm sure that l- there's a lot of different opinions on whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. Cause I think you and I have had that discussion about weight yeah. before where, yeah. you know, where you have a show, like, um, it should have been you should have been, yeah. should have been me. That's right. Should have been you should have mm-hmm. been you where the lead character is a woman that is plus size, mm-hmm. but She's cast as plus size, and then the play is about her being plus size and overcoming, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And I hate those kind of shows yeah. because honestly, there are a million big, beautiful women yeah. out there. Mm -hmm. And they all deserve love and they all deserve to just live their normal lives just like they are and not have it be commented on. The same goes, I'm assuming that you feel this way too, but probably in a much bigger sense that I am black. Well, I'm not, I'm talking for you now. Mm -hmm. I'm black and I deserve love and I deserve to be treated like a Mm -hmm. normal human being because Mm -hmm. that is what I am. And I should be able to live my life in a normal way Mm -hmm. and not have people comment on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I don't I know. I mean, yeah, I told, I totally like, that's, that's exactly it. And I, I think it's not going to happen until, until we have to stop commenting on it. Yeah. It's like, it's like we have to right now, because yeah. our experiences have been so silenced um, or ignored or, We've been told that they're not as important that and they're not as valid, so right, right now we do have to continually talk about like what it is to be in this black body but i think eve I think it would also be wonderful <laughs> at some point to not have to also discuss that yeah. every single time, and that like if a black person wants to just write about love or, um, you know, like something as mundane as getting married and buying a house and, you know, having children, like right now, all of that is colored by our blackness, right? So it's like buying a house is like a deal because depending on what neighborhood you're in, you're going to have like an experience where like something happens because of your color. Yeah, And then, you know, having children is like this whole, it's a deal because you have to sit and you have to like explain to your child that like eventually like how they need to be safe moving through the world. So like their, their lives are not at risk, yeah, their bodies are not at risk, but like right now, because we literally can't live that way. Yeah everything that's written is colored by that because that's where we live. Like that's how it is. And so it's sort of like, until we are seen as, as human beings and not every experience we have or, or so much of our experience be, um, you know, put through this, this um, sieve of like what, are like us being black and, and living inside of a black body until our experience isn't colored by that. We can't really tell stories without it because that is our experience right now. Yeah. <sighs> I can understand that. It's just like, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and the, the sign in Sydney Brewstein's window is, I mean, it's very much about, like, the civil rights movement. Like, she's very much talking about activism. Um, But it's it's just, like, so weird to see the reactions to her writing a play that is still very much in the world of something everyone knows she knows very, very well. Yeah. And has all of the authority needed to speak to. But because, I mean, literally, she had to answer the question... Um, they said, uh, because she didn't have a full, uh, a cast or the play wasn't about black people. They said, um, they asked her why she had left writing about the Negro question. And she was like, I, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she said, what are you talking about in the most eloquent, beautiful way yeah. that you can possibly imagine, I'm right? sure. Right. But like it really, her response really just came down to, I, what, what are you talking like? What are you even saying? Yeah. Like, what is this stupidity that's coming out of your mouth? But like, she didn't say, you know, she said it less blunt than me. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the reviews were, you know, so many of them were just about like, because she tackled so many issues and a lot of issues people weren't willing to talk about, sure um, So the New York Times, one review, Howard Taubman wrote, he said, "Um, the sign in Sidney Brustein's window lacks, um, hmm, concite, wait, concision and cohesion. I'm sorry, I've never seen concision before. I know, to be concise. Yeah, I've never seen it written that way either. Me neither, concision (laughs) and cohesion. Interesting. Okay, Howard. (laughs) <laughs> and, <laughs> and that one remembers isolated passages rather than the work as a whole. Um, I, I don't think that that's a bad thing. Right. I, I mean, I, regardless
0: of what you think, and these are just critics' opinions. Right. And he's probably white. So I would oh, imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, so I'd imagine that some of it's coming from that. You know, I think there's a lot of martin luther king's life that we all just remember in sound bites totally and that's not a not not necessarily a bad thing sometimes Mm -hmm. it can be bad when people are using certain quotes to further their own agendas which actually are not the agenda that martin luther king jr wanted them to have at all right which is happening a lot right now right now especially um but i think you know because i think I don't know. I, that's my opinion, at least. It's it's interesting, though, too, because I'm if I'm going to see a show, a quote unquote black show. If I'm mm-hmm. going to see a show that is meant to be about race, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that it's all going to it's going to be told by all black people.
1: Right. Right. I'm exactly, but because she had written that one play and then yeah. that one play turned into a movie and it was so successful they had just put her in a box. Interesting. And they were like, well, I don't under you know sort of like so many of August Wilson's plays really yes. take place in a black community. Yeah, sure. And so they um you know and she she's before him. She's before his time. Yeah. Um but it's 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 like they just thought that she would sort of do what he did even though she came before you, him. You had a hit. Why didn't you just do the same thing? Over and over and over, <laughs> which is like what most people in entertainment do right. It's like yeah. you do one movie, it's a hit and they just make 20 sequels and just M- do Night the same Shyamalan. thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I was watching um uh Kumal, um he he talked about there was a round table and I think it was the Hollywood report. No, it was Variety. Okay. Variety was doing a round table. And um it was it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and and so um Hassan Minaj was asking the the other people on the panel and Kumal was on the, the panel. He said, I haven't really worked a lot, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. I'm very <laughs> phlegmy. It's
0: got to be this weather. Yeah, it is, because I am too. I'm just trying to hide it.
1: <laughs> <sighs> um, he said, you know, I haven't worked in the film industry a lot, so I'm just wondering, um, like, it's, it, 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 do, do people have, like, a very clear agenda and a very clear picture of, like, what they want to make? And Kumal was like, No. He said, it really just seems like nobody really knows what they're doing and they're all just sort of figuring it out and they just like make a thing and then like it's a hit and so they just try to duplicate that a hundred times because like it seemed like people (laughs) like that one thing. And I was like, he's telling us what we always thought. Thank you, Kumal. You know, it was just like. Yes. It was just like, finally, somebody was like, the emperor has no clothes, pay no attention to them. Like the man behind the curtain is a fraud, you know? (laughs) Yes. And, and, you know, it's, it's like what they tried to do to Lorraine, you know, she had one hit and she was like, well, I'm going to make something different. That's also really good. And yeah, um, the sign in Sidney Team's window is a really good play. Mm hmm. But people just wanted her to do what they do, which is just make the same thing a hundred times. I read another
0: article based on Reason in the Sun that, Mm -hmm. and I can't, again, it's been so, it's been several days. And so I don't remember (laughs) the exact specifics, but the general idea of this was that because her Broadway show was such a success, then she was asked to create the screenplay for the movie. But all along the way from Broadway production on, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she was met with so many different obstacles from the white, you know, people in charge saying, I told you, you I to that on the last up. episode. Oh, okay. Maybe yeah, that yeah. okay, wasn't you. <laughs> well, because I read something too. So, but yes, but perfect example. It's like, yeah. you know, so I'm, I, I can imagine that the whole time she's going through this ordeal of having to write the screenplay, knowing that you know, these people probably didn't watch it on Broadway. They probably didn't even, they didn't appreciate it if they did. All they want is a paycheck at the end of the day. Right, right. And so they're just poo-pooing every little thing that she does. And I'm sure that that was in, that probably informed her reasoning behind not having a fully black cast. Well, I mean, I can't say that for sure, but I'm sure that like that experience must have really helped create her I th- her thinking for the next project or the next right. pro- you know or the project after that and the project after that it's mm-hmm. like I don't know I mean that's she- my conjecture I'm very good at conjecture
1: <laughs> <laughs> she uh, uh, in the documentary they talk about her doing the adaptation and um she she was very adamant in her journals that if she could not write the screenplay it was not going to be purchased mm. and there were a lot of things that she would not bend on mm. and and if if people were not willing to meet that criteria she she was like this 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 play as a movie will never be sold like she wow. so um the fact that it was means i mean they had initially uh, met with a lot of her requests but then yeah, as she was writing the, she was adapting it, and she was putting in information that um, informs the story when you're looking at it from a film perspective, and also um, gave more character and body to the the African American community. Mm-hmm. You know, these extremely white people. <laughs> just like didn't understand what she was doing. And so they were like, can you make this less? Can you take these lines out? And she's like, but that's how we speak. Yeah. Um. That's actually what happens, you know, like she's just putting in reality. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's this, it's this, you know, we've been lately talking so much about the difference in experiences and how you can sort of walk through, you know, for example, making a a play with, you know, with people and you think you're all having the same experience, but like mm-hmm. all of the black people are having a completely different experience than all of the white people are having. Yeah. Um, and so it just really speaks to like how we move through the world that she's putting in things that make sense because that is literally her community that she's and writing about. She's
0: like educating.
1: Yeah. Like she's saying. I, and I love that she even
0: bothered to do that. But yeah. It, but then she's just kind of dismissed. Right. Right. As either right. it doesn't make sense or it's not important enough. We don't right. actually care why you speak like that. Just right. make it something that we're
1: going to understand. And I right. just, ugh, that's so gross. It's really gross. It's really gross. And it, it, it's, it's really, it's upsetting because you wonder, like, if you could go into the trash and find what she had to throw out oh, and, like, yeah. cobble the thing together and, like, make the movie she actually wanted. Mm-hmm. <sighs> <laughs>
0: oh. Yeah, that would be pretty darn amazing.
1: Yeah. Hey guys! Thanks so much for listening. Yes, thank you.
0: We're we're back at it <laughs> with, a, with just you know a sense of normalcy, but with just a little flavor. Just a little flavor. Just a little. <laughs> a little, a little Mrs. Dash in there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Some salt, because we're a little salty. A little, okay, too, so I there's think. a little
0: bit of salt there. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh
1: huh. But a
0: whole lot of taco seasoning. <laughs> Guys, have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Stegger, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening?